So when federal prohibition happens and and it suddenly demonizes something that's part of what you've just always done and always known, there's just something that changes around that. And it changes the public perception of what it means to drink or to make a product. And it takes you know, we're a hundred years past federal prohibition, way more than that past Vermont statewide prohibition. And there's still changes that are happening in what we drink, how we drink, and what is acceptable or not acceptable. That was Susan McClure, the executive director of the Maritime Museum in Virgins, Vermont. I was curious about Vermont's history with brewing and alcohol. I recently learned that Vermont was the second state to hold statewide prohibition before federal prohibition in January of 1920. And considering the fact that Vermont currently ranks number one in breweries per capita, this was surprising to me. So we sat down to chat about why Vermont's troubled history with drinking isn't unique to the state at all, but to the country as a whole. America was kind of founded out of a drinking culture. There's some really interesting research that traces the beginning of democracy back to taverns in the United States. Actually, today, if you go to a bar, you go up, you see the menu, you order the beer that you want. In the late 1700s, early 1800s, you would go into a bar and you would pick a punch off of the punch menu and you would order a bowl of punch for your table. The punch would be brought over to your table and you and all of your friends would share the same bowl of punch. So you had to have a social experience while you were drinking. Susan explained to me that a researcher estimated that in the 1830s, every man, woman, and child was drinking up to five gallons of hard spirits a year, which roughly boils down to about four or five shots of liquor a day. This was staggering and led to some serious issues. It actually leads to some real problems. So there's a large number of people who uh, find themselves in penury because of drinking. There's uh, lots of stories of women whose husbands have left them penniless because they've drank all their money away. There are women who are being abused. Uh, it's breaking up families. These are legitimate, real issues. So it's not just happy people talking about democracy sharing punch. It's real problems that this amount of drinking is causing. However, to go from drinking all this alcohol to a statewide prohibition in 1853, three major things need to happen. We are in a period in the mid-19th century where there's a tremendous shift from rural life to urban life. And a big cause of that specifically here is the canal system. By the time the canal system really has gotten underway and changed our system of commerce in Vermont, uh, it becomes more economically efficient for whiskey to be produced in places like Western Pennsylvania and then shipped back to Vermont on the canal systems. So individuals and small distilleries in towns are no longer an economic necessity. So it's a lot easier when someone comes up to you and says, hey, I think drinking is bad. It's a lot easier to believe them if your entire personal economic situation is not dependent on making whiskey. So the canals change uh, what we have access to and how much it costs to have it. But they also create uh, real urbanization in Vermont. So places like Burlington become bigger cities. And that's when people talk about um, uphill and downhill divides. It really starts at this time. And at the same time, there is a new influx of immigrants coming into Vermont. 
So you have Irish canal workers coming to dig the canals that actually led to this change in the economic situation. And often those canal workers are paid in whiskey. Uh, you have Italian immigrants coming to work in the granite uh, industry and area around Barrie. And you have French Canadians coming to work in the Winooski mills and other ones around Vermont. And a lot of these cultures have a strong drinking tradition, a cultural tradition that's part of community and family. Along with this urban-rural divide and new immigration is a religious movement called the Second Great Awakening. A lot of this Protestant religious awakening is tied to the evils of drinking. It becomes suddenly kind of popular to go to religious revivals. Often part of these religious revivals are signing temperance pledges, committing to not drinking because it's a terrible thing to do. And so it works, and statewide prohibition wins the vote in 1853. But drinking does not stop in Vermont, and a lot of people continue to brew beer in their homes, and laws on regulation are not clear-cut nor evenly enforced. So the temperance movement that actually a lot of times comes out of the religious revival often takes aim at these immigrant groups. And it's not really veiled at all. Like many of the ways that we talk about history now, we say there were undercurrents of racism, but these were overcurrents. They were just racist. Part of the reason they want temperance is so that their own safety from the large influx of foreigners. And they talk about these foreigners who are coming to work in the iron mines and the railroads. And really they say that they will use whatever they can possibly use to protect their families from immigrants. And their biggest tool, they believe in their toolbox, is to outlaw drinking altogether. But cut to 30 years later, and these same problems surrounding drinking that Vermont faced at the beginning of their prohibition resurface, and federal prohibition takes place in 1920. And this lasts 13 years until 1933. So by the time we hit the 20th century, prohibition has really fallen out of favor. There's totally uneven enforcement. There's lots of corruption among government officials and police. And people are kind of sick of it. So Percival Clement runs for governor in 1902, and he is staunchly against prohibition. And he does not win the election, but he makes a really strong case against it, and he really turns hearts and minds. Uh, after the governor election in 1902, they decide that the state can go back to local control. In 1903, there's a statewide referendum, and the citizens of Vermont do decide that they're going to go back to local control. But cut to 30 years later, and these same problems surrounding drinking that Vermont faced at the beginning of their prohibition resurface, and federal prohibition takes place in 1920. And this lasts 13 years until 1933. So after 1933, when federal prohibition ends, there is this huge long tail of prohibition on the beverage industry across the country and in Vermont. So it continues to be illegal to make beer at home up until the 1970s. So when Jimmy Carter changes the legislation that allows people to brew beer in their home, you see all of these people who have been secretly brewing beer in their home then suddenly start to open um, brew pubs. And one of the first to do that was Greg Noonan at Vermont Pub and Brewery, who's really considered kind of the, the father of Vermont brewing in many ways. All in all, this has a huge impact on Vermont's drinking culture. During federal prohibition, only major breweries such as Coors, Budweiser, and Miller managed to stay open by selling and shipping ice as well as selling non-alcoholic beer. But this creates a huge generational divide for microbreweries in the United States. But prohibition effectively kills all of the small breweries that are in the United States, and it takes many more years for that small brewery culture to come back. 
the same can be said for distilleries in Vermont. So in the early 1800s, there were, I think, around 200 distilleries in Vermont. And those distilleries all go away with the changes in the economic situation due to the canals. They go away with the outlying of prohibition, the outlying of selling spiritist beverages in 1853. And they don't really come back. And you've only seen a lot of those distilleries come back within the past 10 to 15 years. Some of those are changes in federal laws around how you can produce hard liquor and how you can't. (laughs) And some of them are that it just takes a while to develop markets and systems and knowledge. One of the biggest impacts of prohibition was actually you got rid of an entire generation of knowledge around how to produce liquor and beer and cider. That with outlying federally the production and sale and distribution of all alcohol in the 1920s, you lose a generation of people. There was no one to pass that knowledge to. So the people who then start doing that again in the 1970s and 80s and up till today, those people have had to learn it themselves. They had to write the books. They had to tell their friends. They had to learn together. And that generational loss of knowledge is something that it just takes time to come back from. And I think it's kind of shows Americans' commitment to drinking that people have tried to get that knowledge back and they're still working on it. Thank you for listening. This has been a podcast by the Center for Research on Vermont.